You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. 
she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry of rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Good morning. If you haven't met me before, my name is Luke and I'm the pastor here at City on a Hill, Melbourne West. And on Anzac Day, we think of the great heroes of our nation, those soldiers, those men and women who've given their lives and risked their lives to secure freedom for us and to preserve that for us. I always think back to the first landing at Gallipoli on April the 25th, 1915, and the incredible courage of those who landed. Uh, John Macefield, an historian from the time, said that they walked and looked like kings in old poems, these epic heroes. We think of people like Simpson and his donkey, John Simpson Kirkpatrick, a, a stretcher bearer who landed on that first day and for several weeks went up and down the hills of Gallipoli, uh, saving lives, carrying wounded people back to the beach so that they could be evacuated until he was shot down by machine gun fire. One of my favourite heroes from the Anzacs is a man called Albert Jacker, uh, the first recipient of the Victoria Cross, the highest award for a soldier uh, for his conspicuous courage at Gallipoli, uh, trapped in a trench with some of his comrades. Uh, everyone else had fallen. Uh, the Turkish troops had attacked this trench, had jumped into the trench, and he held them off on his own until reinforcements could come and then jumped out of the trench, went around the side and jumped back in at the other end and drove the Turks out, an extraordinary act of courage, and one that he would basically repeat a year later in Poziers on the Western Front at this Battle of the Somme. Uh, again, he was in a context where uh, a whole bunch of Australian troops had been captured, about 40 Australian troops, and he managed to stage an incredible counterattack, driving off uh, the Germans and releasing those captives. A man of incredible courage, a true hero, and we think about heroes because today we're going to see one of the great heroes in the history of God's people, Moses. We're drawn to heroes because they're people of courage and bravery. And today we see this man, Moses, a man that we're going to discover over the coming weeks is a man of incredible courage who stands up to the strongest, most powerful man in his world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and leads his people out of Egypt in the great Exodus an extraordinary hero. And we're going to really see over the next three weeks how God formed and shaped and made this man into a hero. And we start today in a strange place. We actually start with the rescue of a hero. You probably know the story quite well of Moses' birth, but it's an extraordinary one. Basically, Moses entered this world under a death sentence. As we saw last week, God's people had come up to Egypt through Joseph. Joseph had had a, an extraordinary impact as the prime minister of Egypt. 
saving his people, saving the Egyptians and also his own family from a terrible famine. And God uses to raise him up and to start fulfilling an incredible promise that God had made. Several generations before, God had made a promise to a man called Abraham. In Genesis 12, he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This was God setting his heart on a people, a people who would be known as the Israelites or the Hebrews. And as Joseph does his work, God is fulfilling that promise more and more. And last week we saw that God's people are growing and flourishing. Exodus 1 verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. It's an extraordinary thing. But we also saw last week that as this happens, the Pharaoh resists this and tries to stop it. He's panicked by the growth of the Hebrews. And so he uh, makes them slaves and makes them make his own cities. But we saw last week that every time, everything that he tries actually backfires on him. 1 verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more God's people multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And so the king of Egypt started uh, tried a new tack. He decided that he would make sure that every Jewish boy baby boy born would be killed. That was his desire. That was his plan. But again, it's foiled by the Jewish midwives who stand up to him and refuse to do this and surreptitiously save these baby boys. And today we see one of the boys who saved, not by much, not by the midwives apparently, but by his own mum. It's the wonderful story of Moses and how he was born and how he was saved. His mother sees that he is a fine child, verse 2. Interestingly, that word fine is the same word basically that we see in Genesis 1, the word good. And so we have this picture that this baby is special, something beautiful, part of God's purposes. And so his mother determines that she will save him. And with great courage, her name's Jochebed, by the way, she hides him away. And just imagine the tension and the anxiety she felt. You know, and when you're a new parent, every little milestone you're so excited by, you want to see every little thing that they can do. But for her, each new milestone probably brought more anxiety, more worries. Will their secret be discovered? Will they be uh, exposed? And so after three months, she resolves that she would have, she'd have to find another plan, and it's an audacious plan. She gets a basket, makes it ready for the water, places her beautiful little boy in there and sets him on the River Nile. It's an extraordinary thing to do. She's clearly not a helicopter parent, uh, but it shows incredible courage and I think great faith. I think she does it because she trusts that God will protect this fine child, this good child that God has given her. And like the, the midwives that we saw last week, God rewards her courage because along comes Pharaoh's daughter. She looks at the basket decides that she's going to save this little child and then even gets her mum, his mum, to nurse him. Extraordinary. So amazingly, Jochebed has so much courage that she saves her child, uh, asks God to look after him essentially, and then is given the opportunity to do that herself. She's even given like a Centrelink allowance so that she can do this work. It's so wonderful. God has provided for her. It feels like God is rewarding her courage and her faith. But I want you to see another of the heroes, the heroines in this story. 
And that's Pharaoh's daughter. I feel like she's the forgotten heroine here. Because when she comes down to the creek, she sees this basket and we're told that she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. See, she, she recognises that this child is a Hebrew child, an Israelite child, the kind of child her father is trying to kill, make sure that they're not around, but she has pity on him, that word pity, kind of compassion for someone weaker than you, for someone vulnerable. It's, it's a powerful person using their power to save someone else. And in the process, I think she's risking her own life, going against her father so explicitly. She risks her life to save another life. And so it means that Moses is rescued, is protected and grows up safe and secure because there's no safer place to be than in the palace of the king. It's a wonderful little story, one we're all very familiar with, but I want you to see like the bigger picture that's happening here. You might remember last week that I suggested that in every narrative that we read in Exodus, there's another story, there's another thing happening behind the scenes. There's this great conflict between good and evil, between God and the devil. And here we see the next little moment in it where this uh, wonderful woman steps forward to do what is right. These two wonderful women do what is right and defy the forces of evil. Because there's this delicious irony in this, of course, isn't there? That Pharaoh, the, the man so obsessed with controlling everything, can't even control his own household. It's his daughter that saves the life of the man who will end up uh, delivering his people from Egypt. God is almost toying with Pharaoh here. Psalm 37, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. It seems clear then that God has a plan for this child, this fine child, this good child, this special uh, blessing that he is given, and we're going to see that develop. And secondly, we see the heart of this hero. You see, having told the story of Moses' birth and early years, we suddenly jump forward in the narrative. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. This is probably actually about 40 years later. He's about 40 years old. That's what we're told in Acts when this happens. And one day he sees this thing happening and he jumps in and actually kills the Egyptian. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, Moses goes out again, and this time he sees two Israelites fighting, and again he decides to intervene. He says to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? But the man challenges Moses, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses had imagined that no one had seen what he'd done the previous day, but now he realises he's exposed and so he must flee to get out of there. He knows that the Pharaoh is now after him. And in verse 15, we find him desolate and alone by a well in Midian. He seems fallen. In just a couple of days, he's lost everything. He was like a prince in Egypt, but now he's a fugitive, hunted and hated. He'd sought to help his fellow Israelites, but even they had rejected him. And so now he's an exile without a home, but with a history. He has nothing and no one. But that's about to change. 
As he sits by the well, some women come to draw water for their father's flock. They're accosted by some bullies and some shepherds and driven away until Moses, like a boss, decides he'll intervene against all of these tough guys. Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And so the women return home to their dad and tell him what's happening. And then they say, and he basically says, uh, ladies, he's a keeper. Go and bring him home to mum. We really need you to get to know this guy. And so Moses is brought home. He gets a roof over his head. Soon enough, he's married. He has a child. It's been quite the week. He started in Egypt as a prince. He's lost all of that, became a fugitive, but now he has a home. He's fallen, but he's fallen on his feet. I wonder what we make of Moses in all of this, in this little moment these incidents that we see here. Because I think we see the heart of a hero in both good and bad ways. Our first instinct when we read this story is to condemn Moses for killing the Egyptian. As nice 21st century people, we kind of figure you shouldn't beat people up and kill them. And yet we might actually need to pause a little bit before we rush to that judgment. It's actually worth noting that some commentators are a bit ambivalent about this moment. They see Moses as a kind of instrument of God's justice. God's people are being oppressed by the Egyptians. God is about to overthrow the Egyptians. We're going to see that in plenty of detail in the coming weeks. And perhaps Moses is the first sign of this. So he's almost, perhaps he's doing God's will. Uh, and in some ways, it seems that that's the way it's presented in Acts, Acts 7. Uh, and, and seeing one of them being wronged, Moses defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Uh, and there's actually something kind of a bit Liam Neeson about this, you know. He sees an injustice and he must step in. I will find you. I will kill you. Like that, that's what it sort of feels like. And so perhaps part of us wants to see this. We almost applaud what he's doing here. And yet, of course, there's something, well, problematic about, about this as well. You actually sense that Moses feels like this might be wrong. Before he does it, he looks this way and that. He hides the body afterwards. And as soon as he's discovered, he flees because he knows he has no defence. And so at the very least, there's a kind of dangerous impulsiveness here. Tim Chester writes that Moses is actually behaving like an Egyptian slave master. And so he needs to unlearn the ways of the Egyptian court. It's a reminder that we cannot do God's work in worldly ways. Uh, perhaps then Moses has kind of just jumped in, perhaps with the right motives, but the wrong way of going through them. And yet we see something here that God can use, that God will use. We see a fierce sense of justice, of right and wrong. You see, it's not just with this first instance. He also sees the, the, the two Israelites fighting and he sees there's an injustice there, so he jumps in. And he sees it with the, the women of Midian as well. And you can see a kind of purity in his motives here. See, with the first person who's being beaten up by the Egyptian, you could say, oh, well, he stepped in purely because uh, it was an Israelite and it was about nationalism, parochialism. But then he's willing to do that when he sees two Israelites together as well. And he's even willing to do it when he finds some women, complete strangers from another uh, tribe, another people altogether, the Midianites. There's actually something uh, fundamental in Moses that can't handle that which is wrong. 
He has a fierce sense of justice. There is something here, the heart of a hero. And there's something else here too, something deeper. You see, in this moment, he's choosing to identify with God's people. He had, of course, had a pretty unusual upbringing, an Israelite uh, who grew up in the palace of the Egyptian king. Likely his identity, his Hebrew identity, was hidden from him until he could uh, keep the secret himself. But at some point he works it out. He knows who he is. And at that moment he has options. He could be Jewish, that's right, but it would actually be much easier for him to be an Egyptian. We're told in Acts 7 that he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So he knew how to live as an Egyptian. Perhaps he respected their wisdom. He had power. He had comfort. He grew up in a palace. He was like a prince. There were so many opportunities for him. And no one knew about his heritage. No one knew about his Hebrew blood. And so he could stand apart from the suffering of his people. That was his choice. But in this moment, he chose to identify with God's people. I love the way it's described. Verse 11, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He's identified with them. Elsewhere in Acts 7, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And so the moment he saw from the palace walls, decided to step out, he was stepping into this identity, choosing to be one of God's people, choosing to side with those who were enslaved and oppressed. In Hebrews, this is uh, lauded as a moral choice. Hebrews 11 verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This is the heart of a hero. And yet we find all of these questions as we dig a little bit deeper. Questions about identity, you see, while he is now identifying as an Israelite, his own people were not identifying with him. That's the impression you get in verse 14. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? What right have you got to speak into our lives? Who are you to us? Perhaps they thought he was an Egyptian. Certainly the Midianites thought that. In verse 19, the women said, an Egyptian delivered us. He looks like an Egyptian. They, they figure he is. And then it gets even more complicated as he makes his home among the Midianites. He joins their family, starts his own. He becomes part of their community. And so here he is, an Israelite who looks like an Egyptian, who seems like an Egyptian, now living as a Midianite. If that's starting to get confusing, imagine the confusion that he felt. And so it's quite telling what he calls his son, Gershom. Because, Moses says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. What's he referring to here? Is he a sojourner in Midian? Is he an Egyptian now sojourning in Midian? Or is he an Israelite who's always been a sojourner? It's hard to tell. It's confusing. There's questions here. He's unsure of who he is. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how God will give him a greater sense of who he is who receive a calling from God that will really help him to embrace that. It'll be a fight. It'll be a struggle. And in all of this, 
we see not just the heart of him, this hero, we see some of his brokenness, and we keep looking for something else. We keep looking for a greater hope. And that's why we're pointed to the true hero. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. These are some of my favourite verses in the whole Bible because it describes a God who's on the move. It points us to the true hero of Exodus who has seen his people's suffering and is now going to respond. I think we need to understand just how much God's people were suffering. As we saw last week, the king of Egypt oppressed them afflicted them with heavy burdens, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1. And this goes on for a long time. The exact numbers are hard to work out. How many generations, when you start the clock? Some people think it's as many as 400 years. Others 100 or 200 years. Either way, it's a long time. A long time where they experience only slavery. Numerous generations of Israelites were born, grew up, lived, faded, died in slavery. Just imagine that. Mike Wilkerson writes, imagine being born into slavery and never knowing freedom at all. For the Israelites, Egypt was a place of pain, from the cradle to the grave. Daily suffering was as far as the eye could see, as far as the memory could recall, and as far into the future as the mind could imagine. That's what they had, generation after generation. All they knew was suffering and slavery. And in the midst of that, how they must have wondered where God was. See, it's quite telling that all through this story, we we don't see God, we wonder where he is. We're told that these are God's people, that God has made a covenant with them. But here they are experiencing only slavery and oppression. They must have been thinking, when will God come through for us? And so in pain and in doubt and in desperation, they cry out for help. They cry out for rescue. And we're told, that God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Now, phrase God knew is just so special. William Edgar says knowledge here means full acknowledgement and commitment to intervene. Mike Wilkerson again, it is more than mere awareness of their situation. It conveys deep, personal, intimate knowledge and pity for his people. He is paying attention to his people. And he's remembering his covenant. Verse 24, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. See, God had chosen this people to be his people, his special treasured possession. He'd chosen and promised that he would bless them. And so he's going to make sure that that happens. 
Tim Chester explains that remembering is a covenantal term. It means deciding to act in order to fulfil a covenant. It's not that the promise to Abraham had somehow slipped God's mind. It's not that he got distracted by other things. Remembering means God is about to take the next step in the fulfilment of his promises. He's going to rescue his people. He's going to bring them up out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the promised land, and he's going to overthrow their oppressors, the Egyptians. As Chester continues, he knew their sufferings and he knew his promises. You see, when we read the first couple of chapters, of Exodus. We wonder where God is. We don't hear his name until now. And yet, as Andrew Reid points out, he is here but hidden behind other people and other things. See, we know that he's actually been working, that his promises have been true. That's why they were multiplying and filling Egypt. That's why God multiplied them even under oppression. He was always there. He was always doing something. And now we're seeing more and more what he's been doing. He's promising to make to fulfill his promises. He's going to do this work. Everything has been driven by that. And now it will become evident. You see, he's already working. He's already on the move. He's already preparing Moses. We've seen that in his life, of the way he was protected and moulded and shaped. But it goes deeper than that. I think we're being invited to see in Moses God's heart for his people and his plan for salvation. Do you know the word used to describe the basket that Moses is placed in is the same word used in Genesis for the ark. You think of that wonderful picture. There's so many little hints, hyperlinks that we're going to find in Exodus to this bigger story. Here's another one. You see, what did God do with the ark in Genesis? He used the ark to save Noah and his family from destruction and then deliver them to safety so that they could recommence God's purposes, God's good purposes in the world. And so here again, he saves the life of Moses. He creates another little ark for the one who will be kept safe, the one who will lead his people to safety. And the symbolism continues as Moses matures. In verse 11, we're told that Moses went out to his people, looked on their burdens, saw what was happening. And the same language is in verse 25. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. It's almost like Moses represents God and God's heart. Moses is moved by the struggle of his people and does something about it. God is moved by the struggle of his people and is going to do something about it. In fact, we even see it in Midian. In the Midianites were shepherds and so Moses would have become a shepherd and that becomes the picture for God leading his people out of Egypt. Psalm 77, God, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So when God prepares his hero, Moses, he's also pointing his people, pointing us, helping us to see the heart of God and how he saves his people. And yet even as we look to Israel's hero, Moses, we're being told that we need to look beyond him as well because Moses is not perfect. We see that in this passage, his anger, his Violence. We're going to see it even more next week when God does commission him for the task. Uh, Moses 
tries desperately to get out of it. He comes up with five different excuses. We're going to see that next week. And so he's contradictory sometimes, a bit fickle. There are moments where he's incredibly courageous. He stands up to Pharaoh. He fights for his people. He challenges and confronts his people's sin. But also times where we see great weakness, including the fatal, tragic flaw that means that he is barred from the promised land. And so the Saviour never gets to see the salvation that he was called to provide. He's good but he's not perfect. He's a hero, but a hero with feet of clay. And so we're left looking beyond Moses. We're left looking for a better hero, a better saviour, because ultimately we all need saving. The people of Israel felt the darkness of a physical oppression and slavery, but we feel the oppression of a spiritual slavery. The world around us is broken and bruised. Romans 8, the creation is in bondage to corruption, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Those words bondage, groaning, they're the same as Exodus 2. But it's not just the suffering around us, of course. It's the suffering within us. Jesus said in John 8 that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? We're bound by our sin, bound by our sinful desires, greedy and never satisfied, anxious and never at peace, controlling but always confounded, addicted to the things that destroy us, In fact, so captive are we to sin that we oppress others with our unreasonable demands or our faithlessness or our lying or our anger with our selfishness. And perhaps you've reached that point where you feel that so profoundly that you groan and you cry out. You feel enslaved and you long for God to free you to rescue you? Have you reached that point, reached the end of yourself? Have you cried out to God for rescue? Well, the wonderful message of Exodus 2 is that God hears, God sees, God remembers, God knows, and he has sent someone to rescue us, a rescuer, a saviour, better than Moses. You can see some of the similarities between Moses and Jesus. Moses descended to see the plight of his people. Jesus did the same. Moses was in the palace of Pharaoh. Jesus was in the palace of heaven, full of comfort and power, and he chose to make himself nothing, to see the plight of his people. When Moses came down, he saw what it was like for his people. So did Jesus. When he came, he felt hunger. He felt pain. He felt the grief of seeing one of his best friends die. He felt all of that. He identified with us. He chose to live as a human, even as he was God. We can see those similarities, but there's one crucial difference. 
when Moses came down, he took the life of the oppressor. But Jesus gave his life for the oppressors. Jesus died for the sinner. Jesus died for us. And wonderfully, God used his death to bring life. God loves flipping things around, changing everything that we perceive and expect. And so with Moses, he used the Nile, this thing of death, the place where all the Jewish baby boys were thrown, now becomes a place of life and rescue. And so with Jesus, the cross, the place of death, becomes a place of life and freedom. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Sarah mentioned before the, the, uh, the plaque at the Shrine of Remembrance, that quote from John 15, Greater love has no one than this, that, some, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did, but it's even more dramatic than that because when he died for us, we weren't his friends. Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for his enemies. Christ died for the oppressor. Christ died to set us free. Behold your hero. We're all looking for heroes. We're looking for someone of courage. We're looking for someone who can lead us, who can take us away Give us the exodus that we are looking for. Every human hero is flawed. Even Moses. But Jesus was not flawed. Jesus came down to bring us up, to bring us to him. In his death, we find life. Jesus submitted to the oppressor to free us. Let's celebrate him. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the wonderful way that you rescued the hero. You preserved Moses, giving him life and then prepared him. But, Lord, we see his flaws. We know that he was not perfect. And so we keep finding ourselves looking for another saviour. You had promised that you would send someone to save your people fully and completely and forever. And you remembered that covenant and you sent Jesus to be that hero. We thank you, Jesus, that you came down, that you made yourself nothing, that you saw our burdens, you saw our oppression and you dealt with it. You went to the cross, the place of death, and you brought life. Help us to receive that life. Lord, I pray that we will come to the end of ourselves, that we will groan and cry out for rescue, that we will see our need and then see how you provide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church 
or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.